Good evening. Uh, thank you for taking the time uh, to come out tonight. We're continuing in our study uh, in Jeremiah. We're going to begin considering uh, the 10th uh, chapter tonight. Our text uh, will be the first uh, 16 verses. And uh, that will form uh, our reading and, uh, and then we'll pray. So Jeremiah chapter 10, uh, reading from verse 1. I hear the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain, for one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold, and they fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Who would not fear thee, O King of nations? For to thee doth it appertain, for as much as among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms there is none like unto thee. But they are altogether brutish and foolish. The stock is a doctrine of vanities. Silver spread into plates is brought from Tarshish, a gold from Euphaz, the work of the workmen and of the hands of the founder, blue and purple in their clothing. They are all the work of cunning men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble. And the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. Thus shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth he maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. That's like my worst nightmare. To hear my own voice playing back at me. If you ever want to torture me, you know how to do it. Am I good, James? Cool. Uh, verse 14. Uh, every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image, for his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity and the work of errors. In the time of their visitation they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that you have given to us to spend some time considering your word. We ask that all distractions and hindrances would be removed. Help us to listen well, help us to be teachable, and to respond to the message that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, imagine if somebody owned a mansion on Sydney Harbour. It was a stunning home. Six bedrooms, all with their own bathrooms, state-of-the-art home cinema, resort-style swimming pool, a tennis court, stunning views. This is a $10 million-plus 
property, and yet the owner decides to trade it in for a derelict home in a ghost town in the middle of New South Wales. Hey, whoa. Okay, um, Ephesians 4.32. We're going to go there. That's our new text. Pastor Matthews, be ye kind to Pastor Brennan. Um, that swap would make no sense. Um, it wouldn't make any sense going from Sydney Arbor to Grafton either, so the illustration stands. You know, they traded for something that was incredibly inferior. And uh, this illustrates what Judah had done when they went chasing after idols. They were pursuing things that were infinitely inferior. And this is what this text is all about. It confronts the absolute incomprehensibility of forsaking the Lord, especially in light of the replacements that they pursued. And throughout this text, these idols are compared to the Lord with the intention to reveal the utter irrationality and complete stupidity of replacing the Lord and pursuing these idols. Now, this particular portion of Scripture is actually dripping with sarcasm and irony, and it's quite brutal in its approach. It's a bit like what we refer to today as a roast, okay? not like roast lamb or roast pork, but a roast is when one humorously mocks or humiliates someone else. Okay, this whole TV show is about it today. Okay? And here the Lord, through Jeremiah, roasts these false gods via humiliating mockery, desiring to show their utter uselessness and the people's foolishness in pursuing them. Okay, so let's consider the roasting of these idols by the use of ironic mockery and humiliating contrast and then glean what it has to teach you and I about idolatry. Now, as I've just mentioned, this portion of scripture is almost comical as it identifies the worthlessness and uselessness of these gods that Israel had chased after and embraced. And it begins in verse 2 by confronting a common and significant aspect of pagan worship, and that was astrology. Okay, verse 2 says, Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. Now, there was much attention given to the sun, the moon, and the stars. And Israel had been tempted often with this type of worship. We read during Josiah's spiritual reforms that the people had been burning incense unto the sun, the moon, the planets, and the hosts of heaven. This is recorded in 2 Kings 23.5. And uh, this young king endeavored to exterminate these practices, uh, but it didn't have lasting success. We read here that the heathen were dismayed, meaning they were afraid or they were terrified of the celestial, and also by the supposed messages that they were communicating. And this was a key component of the idol worship that Israel had embraced. It continues in verses 3 and 4 where we see that these idols were man-made, which reveals their inferiority. Verses 3 and 4 says, For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. So what we have described here, it's a little bit like Build-A-Bear. 
Okay, if you know what that is, okay, you can go and you can build your own teddy bear. You can design it and make it however you want. Okay, that was the practice of Judah. It's a bit like DIY today. Build your own God. So in verse 3, they would go and cut down a tree. Then it would be shaped and molded into the desirable image. And then verse 4, it would be all dressed up. You wouldn't just want a plain piece of wood. So you clothe it with silver and gold to make it all pretty. You wouldn't want an ugly God. But then notice at the end of verse 4, and this is meant to be a brutal put down. This God needed to be nailed to the shelf or nailed to the table. Otherwise, it would fall over. So in other words, these gods couldn't even stand up. The mockery continues in verse 5. And in fact, it picks up some momentum. It's like machine gun style, rapid fire insults. Verse 5 begins. Okay, they are upright as a palm tree. And this is actually a difficult phrase to interpret. Some versions translate it that the idols are like scarecrows in a field. And the idea that's conveyed in this phrase is that they are lifeless and they are fixed to one spot. Okay, hence a palm tree. Verse 5 continues, but speaking of these idols, speak not. They must needs be born or carried because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. So these idols, they're unable to communicate. They're dumb. They're unable to move. You know, what kind of God needs to be carried around by those worshipping him? And furthermore, they're unable to do good or evil. Okay, to summarize, they can't do anything. They are completely useless. And the scarecrow is actually quite an appropriate image. They can't move. They can't speak. They can't think. Why worship something so useless? Okay, and the tone here is scornful and sarcastic. It's a little bit like Elijah on Mount Carmel, if you remember the story. You know, guys, cry a bit louder. Maybe Baal's asleep. Okay, yell louder. That's the idea. Okay, and Jeremiah here is like, you know, guys, wake up. What are you doing? Why are you pursuing these things? It makes no sense. Surely you can't be so silly that these things are useless. They're worthless. Why pursue them? And their utter futility is only magnified when they're compared to the Lord. And this is the main point throughout the text. They'll talk about the idols and then they'll compare it to the Lord. Talk about the idols and compare it to the Lord. We have the first comparison with the Lord in verses 6 and 7, which says, For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Verse 7 who would not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain. For as much as among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like unto thee. Okay, notice this starts and it ends with the same phrase. There is none like unto thee. Okay, that emphasizes the importance of this statement. And it stresses the incomparability of the Lord. Okay, it highlights his uniqueness. God is one of a kind. There is nobody like him, that there is nothing like him. You compare to the idols, these idols, they're everywhere. They are so common, you can't find it, just make another one. But that's not the case with the Lord. There's no one like him. And this is a theme ingrained throughout the scriptures. The Lord is incomparable. Now, the text says that he is great. So this is who he is. He's great in his being, in his essence. 
but his name is also great. That's referring to his reputation. So what he has done throughout history declares his greatness. Think of creation. Think of how he had delivered his people out of Egypt. So we could say that the Lord is great and he has done great things. Okay, this is the Lord. And the idea is he is putting the Lord up here in comparison to these idols. Okay, the Lord is not some scarecrow in the paddock, but rather he is a king of the nations. We see this in verse 7. And we understand that a king deserves and commands allegiance. And yet here was Judah. They had forsaken their king. And they had pledged their allegiance to these idols. It makes no sense. Now the sledging of these idols continues into verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. But they are altogether brutish and foolish. The stock is a doctrine of vanities. Silver spread into plates is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of the workmen and of the hands of the founder. Blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of cunning men. Because the verse 8 begins in a very blunt fashion. Just puts it out there. They're brutish. In other words, they're stupid. And they're foolish. They're senseless. They're dumb. They're a waste of time. And so is any instruction or teaching that supposedly comes from these idols. Okay, that's the sense of the second part of verse 8, which is actually very difficult to try and put into English. Okay, but the sense is that instruction from the idol has as much value as the idol itself. So the idol is worthless, so is any supposed instruction that comes from this idol. Then the argument continues in verse 9, and the main point that's made is that it doesn't matter if these idols are constructed from the best materials that money can buy. It doesn't matter if they are crafted by the most gifted tradespeople. They are still pointless and worthless. They may be a beautiful piece of art, but as a god, they are nothing. The two places referred to in verse 9 seem to indicate where the best silver and best gold would be purchased from. And then we read of blue and purple clothes. They were the colors of royalty. And these particular dyes were the most expensive. If you remember Lydia in Acts chapter 16, I believe it is. She was a seller of the purple dyes. Very expensive. But the point here is that no cost has been spared and yet all of these embellishments did not transform them into living gods they're still powerless they're still pointless and this becomes especially clear when they're contrasted to the lord in verse 10 okay verse 10 this is a wonderful declaration about our god but the lord is the true god he is the living god and everlasting king At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. Now this particular description of the Lord is purposefully designed to attack these idols. And what's presented confronts the frailties and the failures of the idols directly. So these attributes of the Lord purposefully contrast with the idols. Many attributes of God could have been used. Why these ones? 
Well, the point is this. The Lord is a genuine God. He is a living God. He is an eternal God. And then when you look at the idols, they were false deities, lifeless deities, and only existed for a period of time. So in every single way, the Lord is superior. And the superiority of the Lord is continued to be displayed next through the test of creation, which we begin to see in verse 11. And this particular verse is unusual because it's actually in Aramaic. And it's unusual to have one verse of Aramaic in a Hebrew text. There are other portions of scripture throughout the Old Testament that are Aramaic, but not usually single verses. And hence this leads scholars to believe that this was a proverbial saying of the time. Hence it was in the language of the people. And perhaps this was to be used by the people when they're in Babylon, okay, as, a, you know, as their you know, doctrinal position on this particular issue. Now in verses 12 and 13, the Lord is presented as the creator. Okay, and the point is this. Okay, you have these idols who are man-made on one side, and yet the Lord, he made man on the other side. And this ultimately proves his superiority beyond a doubt. Verses 12 and 13 says, He hath made the earth by his power, he hath established the world by his wisdom, and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. Okay, so there's a declaration here that the Lord made the earth. Okay, that's consistent with Genesis 1. Okay, this is amazing power. He spoke and it was done okay that, that's amazing I, I think often we know that so well that it probably doesn't hit us of how powerful that actually is you can't speak and something is created okay i can't do that but that's what god did let there be a dog and there's there's a dog okay that is incredible okay so he created the world but he also sustains the world when we talk about sustaining the world he holds it all together if God didn't do that, the world would fall apart. And this is what's stressed in the second half of verse 13. Now from verse 12 down to verse 16, it's actually repeated again in Jeremiah 51. But what is stressed is the power of God compared to the idols. So he created and controls the heavens and the earth. And yet, here are these idols, they are made by man. Okay, verse 14, these idols, they are lifeless, that there is no breath in them. Okay, these idols, they are vain, they are empty, they are futile, they are useless. Then if you look at verse 15, in the time of visitation they shall perish. So in other words, these idols would not be able to help Judah when Babylon comes. Okay, they're completely unable to assist them in any way but the lord he's different okay verse 16 says he is not like them he's referred to as a portion of jacob okay this means that not only did the lord create the world but he also made a people for himself one's portion 
referred to some possession that belonged to them. It was often used of land. Okay, when Israel came into Canaan, the land was divided up into portions okay, per family. This word was also used of an inheritance or, or of the plunder that would be split after a battle. And this verse is saying that the Lord had chosen Israel to be his people. They belonged to him. He belonged to them. Why would they forsake a God like that for these idols that are infinitely inferior? So this text has unleashed a scathing assessment of these idols. That they've been torn apart. They've been proved to be worthless, especially when they're being compared to the Lord. It's completely inconceivable that Judah would trade the Lord for something so inferior. And with the basic structure of the text considered, I want to move to three questions to help us apply this text to our lives. Question number one is this. Is idolatry a problem for us? I think there's a real danger when we read of Israel's idolatry. We can just shake our heads and we can think, how could you be so silly? And we can think of idolatry as some primitive problem that's not an issue today. Because we can think, hey, there's no way in the world that I would bow down to some sticks or stones. You know, I wouldn't go to Bunnings tomorrow, buy a piece of wood, handcraft that paints it all pretty and start worshipping it. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. But my friend, understand that idolatry still tugs at our hearts. Okay, it looks very different, but it's still alive and active. To understand this, it's vital that we have a proper definition of idolatry. Very simply, it is placing anything or anyone before God. Or looking to something else to provide what God can only provide. It is something being more important than God to you. It is anything that you love more than God. It is anything that you desire more than God. One theologian says idolatry is trusting some substitute for God to serve some uniquely divine function. And with that understanding, with that definition, it means that just about everything in life can become an idol. And where it gets particularly hard for us is usually we take good things, okay, things that aren't wrong in of themselves, but we make them the ultimate thing in life and they become an idol. So let's think through some examples. Okay, let's think of marriage. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a gift from God, but we can make it an idol. Okay, what do I mean? Well, people can think, if only I was married, then I would be happy. If only I was married, then my life wouldn't be so meaningless. If God loves me, why aren't I married? Okay, I would be content and fulfilled if I was married. My friend, that's idolatry. And I'd like to be bold enough to suggest that this has gripped so many Christian young people. This is why many people marry someone that they shouldn't, because they're looking for marriage to provide something that only God can 
provide. Okay? And realistically, marriage becomes something that one desires far more than God. That's idolatry. Money. Money is not evil in of itself. Okay? If the Lord's blessed you with lots of money, praise him for it. But we can very easily live for money. We can love money. And we can end up with an unsatisfiable desire for more. It's like an unquenchable thirst. Okay? And please understand that you don't have to be rich for this to be a problem. Okay? Poor people can make money an idol. Okay, and you can think, if, just if I had more money, then I'd be happy and content. Or if you feel safe and secure because of your money. Or, or if you are constantly thinking about and are concerned about money. It's just always on your mind. My friend, it's probably an idol. Materialism. This is one of the most common gods of our society. Very similar to money. And you know, the idea is the one with the most toys wins. Okay, that was a very popular bumper sticker at one point okay and life revolves around the house the car the clothes the tv the latest gadgets and technology life is all about stuff okay? you live for material things and you're searching for worth and fulfillment in things okay the the stuff of life is your treasure that's your heart's greatest desire that's idolatry Work, okay? Work ends up becoming the thing that matters more than anything else in life. You find your identity, you find your purpose in your job. You want nothing more but to be recognized and successful. That the greatest thrill of life is making progress up the ladder. You'll sacrifice anything and everything for work. Okay, and we, we could go on. Education, sex, power, popularity, children, our bodies, our ministries, I wouldn't have enough ink to detail them all because we can turn all things into idols. Okay, and understand, this is a problem for us. Okay, this is an issue for us as Christians. Now, to identify the idols in our life, okay, we can ask these questions. I've got them listed. Okay, what do I love? What do I think about the most? What fantasies does my mind concoct? What makes me angry? What makes me happy? Where do I find purpose and significance? What do I spend my money on? What do I want more than anything else? What is missing in my life? Okay, these questions will help to diagnose the idols in our hearts. And it's so important to understand and believe that we can and we do struggle with idolatry okay it's true we're different to judah we're more sophisticated we're more advanced we have many more options but so often god is not our greatest love he's not our heart's greatest desire we're looking to other things we're looking to other people to provide that which only he can provide satisfaction identity purpose completion and we're prone to elevate people things and experiences to, to the place of practical messiah in our life okay? as the ultimate thing and and our life is miserable and pointless without that my friend that's idolatry and it's alive and active and we all struggle with it so question two why 
do we struggle with idolatry? And there, there are many answers to this particular question. And we find it easier to worship something that we can see. We desire instant fulfillment. We can control our man-made gods. There's less obligation with our created gods. Okay, they don't demand holy living. We're, we're created to worship, so there's an innate desire to worship. And no doubt there are many other reasons. But I like to restrict it to the text. I want to draw your attention to verse 2. It says, Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen. The verb learn not is the idea of becoming a disciple. Okay? It's to learn or to be trained in something. And the challenge here is to not become like those around them. It's like an Old Testament version of Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world. And within this warning, it reveals one of the leading reasons why Judah embraced idolatry. And that was because everyone else was doing it. That there was a pressure to be like those around them. Does that sound familiar? Okay, to conform to the common mold. To be in step with everyone else. It's like, well, hey, no one else has one God. Why, why should we be so different? And this would have been particularly challenging because at this time, the nation of Israel were in decline. And when they saw and heard about Babylon, how Babylon was expanding, they were the new superpower, they would have equated that with their gods because that was the common perception of the time. So it would have been very appealing to embrace these other deities and this is still a very real reason why we embrace varying idols today because of the influence of our society because we just want to be like everyone else we don't want to be different and also the false gospels that we are bombarded with by our society a couple of examples of these false gospels. Okay, society preaches that we are free sexual beings. We can do whatever we want with whoever we want. And one is incomplete, ignorant, and intolerant if they don't celebrate and embrace such a lifestyle. Okay, and sexuality is viewed as a key component of identity and fulfillment. Don't believe me? Read the newspaper, Manly Sea Eagles, and you'll see my point. Think about the whole advertising industry. Okay, what are they trying to do? Well, they are trying to convince you that your life will be better if you use their product. You will be more accepted, more confident, more successful. You will be more happy and fulfilled if you use their product. Okay, what about materialism? Society preaches that you're a failure if you don't have a nice home, if you're not driving a new car, wear the best clothes. Your identity and your worth is bound up in your possessions. Okay? And, and we could go on and on and on. There is a lot of pressure placed on us by society. And this is one reason why we're susceptible to idolatry. Now, furthermore, in the text, and this is linked to the point just made, we see that the idols were ascetically pleasing to the people which made them appealing. Okay, these idols looked beautiful. 
Now again, wooden gods with gold and silver don't appeal to us. I understand that. But often what society presents, it looks appealing. It's attractive to our eyes. It's appealing to the desires of our heart. Because the, the image conveyed is that people look happy. People look fulfilled. Particularly in our social media age where you can just edit out all the bad stuff. People seem content. They seem complete. This makes their gods alluring. Okay, we can pursue power, prestige, pleasure, chase the material possessions because the world makes them look so great and make them seem like they are the answer. Okay, that what they are offering is the key to give us everything that we desire. And this is why we can so easily succumb to idolatry because it's all around us. There's pressure to conform and it can look appealing but that leads to a very important question the third question how do we overcome idolatry now our text does two things to help us overcome idolatry the first is realizing that whatever the idol may be and whatever i don't care what example it is inferior to the lord okay it's inferior you could put all of the world's idols together, it's still inferior compared to the Lord. And the idol is ultimately unable to do that which you are trusting in it to do. Okay, like these idols of wood, they're impotent, they're unable to help, they won't and they can't provide that which you are seeking. These idols can't provide you with true identity, worth, purpose, meaning or satisfaction. Okay, so we, we need to get that idea into our heads that our idols are frauds they can't do that which we believe they are capable of doing so that's the first thing grasping the inability and inferiority of our idols but most importantly we need to grasp the greatness of god okay that's the key and this is what the text seeks to do it seeks to elevate the greatness of God over and over again to show how glorious, to show how wonderful he is, particularly in comparison to these idols. Now, for us to overcome idolatry, we need to be struck by the greatness and glory of Jesus. We need to be growing in our understanding of who he is what he's like, what he's done, what he will do. And as we understand more deeply, as we know him more intimately, the allure of the idols of life will not be as intense. They won't look as appealing because we know, because we have tasted the greatness of Jesus. Okay, if Jesus is the treasure of our hearts, if it's him that we want more than anything else, Okay, the allure of the idols of this world won't be that appealing. And we will realize that only Jesus can provide certain things. Only he can provide true identity, purpose and fulfillment that's ultimately found in him. And there is nobody that comes close to Jesus. He's greater than anything. He's greater than everything combined. And as we grasp the splendor of his person, as our love for him grows, that is how idolatry is overcome. In fact, that's how sin 
is overcome. So it's not just, okay, don't do it. Just, just, just get rid of it. Okay, but it's replacing it with something far greater. And Jesus is infinitely greater than any idol that we may be clinging to in our life. And may we be so captivated, may we be so enthralled with Jesus, be growing in our understanding and love of him. May he be the treasure and delight of our heart, because that is the way to conquer the idols of our life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, I do thank you uh, for, for this uh, portion of scripture. Lord, it, it always amazes me that something that was written so long ago to, to a, a different race of people is still so relevant to us today. This is a, a testament to the divine uh, qualities of the scriptures. Thank you that they're relevant. And uh, Father, I do pray uh, that you would help us as we uh, all battle uh, varying idols in our life. Lord, please help us to treasure and to love and adore Jesus Christ more than anything else. Father, as, as we go our separate ways, uh, please keep us safe until we meet again, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.